Welcome to the December 21st edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I'm Anthony Bardaway, and I'll be doing this on my own because, bad news, I got COVID, and there are very limited times of the day where I am alive enough to do this. So, and it doesn't work very well trying to get scheduling going when you're only really alive after about midnight or so. So here I am. So with that out of the way... COVID cast. Let's do this. And the first thing I want to talk about is some news out of Kiev. In our last news update, sorry, this was a bit of a delay. Again, I was not not very competent recently. But so since our last update, we were talking about how there had been increased missile attacks on Kiev, drone attacks, and that has certainly continued. Thankfully, there has not been so many deaths, though on the 14th, there was one Kinjal missile that was a, it's a very fast ballistic missile, only has a few seconds to respond to it, but it was shot down on the 14th and in the debris, it hit an apartment building and a few other buildings in the area, including the entrance to a children's clinic. There was 50 plus people who were hospitalized. And unfortunately, this is what the winter is looking forward to there again i think that our air defenses are strong enough to prevent it from hitting too many serious things there was another attack on what was russia was hoping to hit in a different attack a a water treatment plant a sewage treatment plant which would have been very bad if it knocked that out but again that was also intercepted so these things keep getting intercepted but the danger is still the debris from these missiles uh, raining down and still killing people although in this case that that thankfully did not happen to the best of my knowledge a lot of these drones are also deadlier than they were last year russia has been putting a lot of effort into upgrading its drones and making them more in-house these drones are much more russia developed rather than before they were very reliant on iranian built drones the the the, the russian drone industry has caught up and is producing quite a lot more so than ukraine unfortunately but they are still being shot down so kiev generally speaking still safe because it is guarded by the patriot missile defense but safe is a very relative term so on that note we'll go on to our combat update the battle of avdivka is ongoing the russians continue to make creeping gains in most directions uh, in the north where most of it is happening they seem to have creeped their way across some of these fields though they have not taken any of the smaller villages yet in the northern area of Avdivka, there's a bunch of these smaller villages that are being used as strong points. The fighting is still happening more so in between what Russia already held and some of these villages not capturing them yet or hopefully ever. So the progress is very slow and the fighting has come to the coke plant in the city is one of the major places where a lot of the videos are coming out of now the processing of a very particular type of coal used in metallurgy we always talk about that in Amtivka, but if you're not heard that explanation before that is what is the important industry in Amtivka was this coal plant for metallurgical purposes 
though that is now destroyed. That coke plant no longer exists, except as a fortress to fight out of. They've also made some creeping gains in the southeast of the city, the road into Donetsk, essentially. It's a suburb of Donetsk. And it's interesting here because there's this interchange leading from Donetsk City into Evdivka, and that had always been held by the Russians. When it had been to Evdivka before, you could not take the normal route, the normal road into the city because it was. You know, the main entrance was Russian occupied. The Russians have been creeping out of this intersection. Uh, there's a s- industrial section of the city, which is kind of funny to say, seeing as how a lot of Evdivka <laughs> is industrial section. So when people say the industrial section of Evdivka, which one do you mean? But the the area in the southeast, the Russians have been having to take a couple of blocks into it, whereas the Southwest. Uh, the Russians have made some gains there, but not even fully reversing the Ukrainian offensive of a few months ago in that area. So, north in danger, southeast less danger, southwest least danger. And all still happening at the tremendous rate of Russian losses that surpass even Bakhmut. This is a very bloody battle under what is ultimately a very small territory. And it will continue to be the focal point of the war because, like I said before this offensive happened, Evdivka is the only obvious place for Russia to attack right now. If you look to the north, in its offensive against Kupyansk that has not only stalled out, but Ukraine has been able to do some small, small, small counteroffensives in that territory to push them back a little bit. Russians moving forward a little bit, but was people thinking that the grand Kupyansk offensive has stalled out and has been stalled out for months. If you look at Marinka, which is to the south of Evdivka, to the southwest of Donetsk City, this is another suburb like Evdivka of Donetsk City. Marinka is interesting because it had always been partially held by Russia since 2015. The city was divided between Ukrainian government control and Russian military control via the their DNR proxies. And it had a certain image because of that. During the long Donetsk War, there was this area called the Gray Zone, you know, the area in between the Ukrainian and Russian front lines that for the longest time, because the war had entered a kind of frozen, semi-quiet phase where some died, but not many in the grand scheme of things, definitely not hardly any compared to how many people are dying now. The gray zone, this area in between uh, Ukrainian, the no man's land in between Ukrainian and Russian lines, it, it had something weird about it where where people would almost be abandoned <laughs> by either side because they couldn't be reached. And Marinka especially was interesting because the gray zone was split within a town itself. Most of the gray zone was, you know, unpopulated land or like a tiny little village in the middle of it where one or two people would live. But Marinka was an actual town where some of it was gray zone, some of it Ukrainian, some of it Russian occupied. And so it had a kind of an, an image it existed with 
in a narrative with an image of the war of being a centerpiece of conflict. And throughout the full-scale invasion, this continued. The Russians had tried to advance through Marinka for this entire nearly two years. So this town, which had always been divided, had been largely depopulated and had been to a heavy extent destroyed way back by 2015, the Russians still not being able to take it has been, well, interesting. Well, recently, it seems as though Russia has finally taken it. There were a few false reports saying that their conquest had been complete, and now it seems as though Ukraine still holds on to a tiny little bit of it within city limits, but outside of any popular, well, formerly populated area. There's basically a some some country road and a small kind of bridge that Ukraine is still holding on to that is technically within Marinka city limits. But Russia in in all this time from 2015 till now, I guess they finally did it. And the last thing I want to talk about is the quote unquote river war. It has now become very clear that Ukraine controls a substantial portion of the eastern bank of the river near Kherson, especially in the village of Krynki. There has been a lot of chatter out of the Russian side of them being unable to dislodge this um, this pocket of Ukrainian control. At the same time, there have been some Ukrainian uh, grumbling that they're not giving the material needed to push any further than they already have beyond this first line of villages that are on the left bank of the Dnipro River. As always, this part of the war is very difficult to confirm any information about because so much of it is very secretive, special forces, etc. I've given this whole spiel before, but the crossing which had been very touch and go, very control a little bit here, control a little bit there, now seems the, the bridgehead is created, and we just have to see what more will come out of that bridgehead. Moving on from the combat update is something that we really need Romeo to talk about, because it's about a person who he very much has a vendetta against, so I won't try to talk about it too much. But Ilya Kiva. Ilya Kiva. He used to be a kind of political mercenary in Ukraine. He did a lot of nonsense stuff for a while. He was the head of the right sector, the far-right organization, the right sector, in its kind of eastern district around Poltava and into Donbass region. After he was... After he kind of got the boot from right sector because of various things, he ended up trying to take over the Socialist Party of Ukraine. He kind of faked a bunch of documents to make him the official head of the party, which the members of said party were uh, not especially thrilled about. But he jumped from being a far-right activist to apparently a far-left activist. And then with the full-scale invasion to full-on Russian collaborator, he helped out the Russians during the siege of Kiev until he slipped away. Apparently, he was absconded in the night at some point across Russian lines as they were holding the, nother, the, the northern suburbs of Kiev. He made a bunch of statements about how Ukraine and Belarus were naturally a part of Russia and how Kiev need to be nuked. So there's a big one. And made his way to Moscow. Well, he eventually met his end. He was shot multiple times, 
near, I guess, a country club of some kind not far away from Moscow, and the SBU immediately took credit, and not only took credit, but posted a uh, an image from the scene of the assassination of a gun. So no beating around the bush there. The main directorate of intelligence of the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, Andrei Yusov, said, yes, we can confirm Kiva is no more. This fate will befall other traitors of Ukraine and puppets of Putin's regime. He then went on to say that Kiva was, quote, one of the biggest scumbags, traitors, and collaborators, and that his death was justice. And I fully agree. He was a terrible, terrible person who directly collaborated with the Russians after his political fate was sealed in Ukraine to his own many screw-ups and scandals. If you go to his Ukrainian Wikipedia page, there's the, the list of scandals, which is the largest part of it. And we did an episode on him a long time ago when he was just a weird political figure in the darkest recesses of the Ukrainian political scene. This is episode three of the podcast, back when everything was very strictly scripted and we didn't talk very well. So it's not a great episode, but it makes me want to find do this Where Are They Now episode. So in January, I'm making this promise, we will go back at the various people that we covered, the various bad actors that we did little biographies of in the early days pre-invasion of this podcast and give a little update of Where Are They Now. So spoiler alert for Ilya Kiva, the subject of one of these episodes, he's dead now. He was killed as a traitor. But the rest of this episode will now go to international topics. A tremendous amount happened within these last handful of weeks uh, since the beginning of December. And some of it quite bad, some of it quite good. So let's move on, starting with, I think, the most immediately important in the short term, which is... U.S. Congress uh, really not being able to move forward with Ukraine funding bills. Now, as it stands right now, Ukraine is funded from the U.S. for only a few more weeks. We received our last tranche of funding for the year, and until there is further funding, further uh, voted for funding, that's it. Or at least that's it for the amount that is funded through that particular um, avenue. There are others, mainly Europeans, and we'll get to that. But out of the budget set aside for Ukraine, that's it. The GOP really wanted to get whatever they could first. There are some in the GOP who I thought would put some kind of effort in to keep Ukraine funded, whose voice would be used as a stopgap for the more far right of the party, which is much more hostile to Ukraine. I turned out to be wrong about that. Now, President Biden tried a tactic of tying Ukraine aid into Israel aid in hopes that the GOP would, in order to fund Israel, would fund Ukraine along with it. That turned out not to work. Their counteroffer was that the Republican Party demanded that in order to pass Ukraine funding, the U.S. would also pass a very draconian set of border policies and funding for those border policies. Now, this is obviously a poison pill. 
I think. Biden right now seems to be very accepting of this idea. He is willing to go through this the change to this very draconian, very conservative, reactionary set of border policies in order to get this Ukraine funding. But the deal could not be worked out in time for Congress to go on recess. Which is crazy to me that Congress can just take a vacation when things get tough. And not only do that, use the the ticking time clock of going on vacation as a way to grind the business of the United States to a halt, but that's just how it goes, unfortunately. But back to this idea of it being a poison pill, Ukraine funding has been very complicated by the ways in which it has been tied to other causes. First, I said Israel. Well, if you don't want to fund the Israeli war in Gaza, and many are not willing to do that, then you might be willing to take the hit of getting rid of Ukraine funding, even if you're otherwise supportive of it, which did happen for some. And it also ties those things together in people's minds, that every time there is a unfortunate news story out of Gaza, and there are many of them, Ukraine then gets blamed for that, because it was tied one-to-one. And now with this idea of border funding, well, there are going to be very ugly stories out of this funding, this, this change in border policy happening. There will be people dying at the border. People are already died at the border. The border policy is not super humanitarian as is. Getting worse will put the images out there of people suffering at the border. And why are those people suffering at the border? Because the Democratic Party, President Biden, decided they had to in order for Ukraine funding to happen. And I don't think this is a tremendous number of people who will uh, vote Republican in order to have easier border policy or more pro-Israel policy. That's absurd, but it will cause attrition in Democratic voters, and that attrition will be mentally and very really tied to Ukraine, causing more and more frustration with Ukraine. I'm very afraid of that. I think that just leaving these bills as are, it could eventually work. The Democrats disagree with me. They do think that it needs to be tied to more regressive policies on the border in order to work. And well, that seems to be pretty much set in stone at the moment. I do think this deal will go through when Congress is in session next month. I do not think that Ukraine funding is completely at an end. I think a deal will be struck. Um, Zelensky was in America to push it along. And while he does seem very frustrated, he does not seem hopeless. So it seems as though there's something in the works. But for now, there's no more funding. And the Ukrainian military has to make these plans in mind. They do have to ration ammunition more. They do have to ration shells more. They do have to ration everything more because they do not know for sure that more will be coming, at least from the U.S. So that is our Scylla and our Charybdis. Ukraine does not get any funding at all. And, well, a lot of people die here. On the other side... Ukraine gets funding, but it does so through mechanisms that piss a lot of people off and lead to more frustration and friction with Ukraine funding in the future. And above that, when the Republicans know that they are able to basically roll out a wish list and get whatever they want so long as they continue to fund Ukraine, they're going to take advantage of that. And eventually, their appetite will no longer be able to be sated and they'll cut us off anyway. So, next election, next year, 
keep that in mind and remember that our lives are at stake because the GOP, even when they are a friend, hold a dagger behind their back, ready to plant it in whenever it gives them the slightest bit of profit. <sighs> Moving on to Hungary. Hungary was doing some weird stuff. <laughs> or I should set this up more. There was a meeting of the EU, like a big meeting of the EU leaders to vote on various things. And as we talked about in an earlier episode when this was announced, one of these things was that Ukraine would enter into negotiations in order to actually enter the, the EU. So at the starting line, here's now the beginning of the process to get specific policy demands on the table for Ukraine to meet, and after those demands are met, join the EU. This will be a long process, but as a process nonetheless. And a lot of this Hungary news revolves around this meeting. At first, Hungary was saying that they would block this the vote in order to grant Ukraine this beginning of ascension status, while also threatening to withhold further EU funding to Ukraine. Well, they got half of this. Interestingly, in a move that very much reminded me of the show House of Cards, if you watched House of Cards with the disgraced actor Kevin Spacey, there's a weird part of the show where all the political things had to do with these weird parliamentary rules. And then there's one part in the show where the Republicans refused to be in the chambers to have a vote until they struck a deal for the bailiffs to like drag them in. It was weird. Anyway, it just reminded me of that, where in order to have his cake and eat it too, sort of, Viktor Orban, the ruler of the Hungarian regime, just wasn't in the room when it came time to vote for Ukrainian EU ascension talks. So he did not vote against this, like he said he was going to, but he didn't vote for it either. And afterwards, this whole thing of this is a big mistake by the EU that they're going forward with without Hungary's approval. Well, it was with Hungary's tacit approval. You just decided, specifically decided not to be in the room at that time. It seems as though he was talked into it by other EU leaders saying you can keep you know, making your weird populist rants. Just don't vote no and everything will be fine. And that seems like it happened. Very, very strange person, this Viktor Orban. But the other half of it was EU funding to Ukraine, which he was there to vote against. Now, I'm not as concerned with this as opposed to the US, because various leaders within the EU said quite declaratively that this funding would reach its way to Ukraine, even if it did not go through specifically EU mechanisms, they would just do it as individual countries. So I'm talking about US funding. That's just one thing that exists and one thing that can be cut off. With EU funding, this specific route out of the EU itself was closed down by Orban, but it'll just be diverted into other avenues, direct aid from Germany, direct aid from France, direct aid from the Netherlands, etc. So it's not as much of a problem. Money will get there when it does. And in a lot of the atmosphere around this meeting was very pro-Ukraine, again, except for Orban, and very reassuring that more aid will be coming, more equipment will be coming. Uh, so EU side, things going pretty good still, though we're looking forward to stronger far rate presence in the Netherlands that may make things worse. Slovakia government not doing great, but there's other thing, problems in Europe, but overall it's 
staying with the good stuff. The fact that Viktor Orban's Hungary acquiesced to Ukraine joining EU ascension talks and then going on to veto funding for Ukraine, well, the missing piece here is that Hungary is not receiving EU funding right now because of its many, many problems with democracy. It's not meeting European standards of good governance. So what they're doing is trying to blackmail Ukraine funding to get theirs along with it. At least that's what it seems like to me. And that is basically what's going on with the Republicans as well. They know that Ukraine desperately needs funding, and they know that their political opponents, either in Washington or Brussels, very much want to follow through and provide that funding. So they're using whatever methods they can to get the money or the policies or whatever it is that they want because they know that the alternative is many more Ukrainians dying and people want to prevent that. There is also the very direct connection in that strategy where while Orban was in America, he held a meeting at the Heritage Foundation, the pretty establishment Republican think tank in D.C., where he met with various leaders of the Republican Party and strategies on how to deny Ukraine funding further. So there we go, global, right-wing, illiberal conspiracy against Ukraine, where they see what they can get out of the deal as they make Ukrainian people suffer and flail in the wind. Moldova is joining Ukraine in this step of the process, while Georgia is one step behind giving, being given candidate status, which Ukraine had uh, for the last year. And next to talk about Poland. In our previous episodes, we had talked about this trucker protest that had shut down the border with Ukraine and well, not the entirety of the border, but some border crossings were shut down at some points, more border crossings than others, to the point where there were various estimations, but number one number that I saw was that at one point, at least 40% of truck transit between Poland and Ukraine had been shut down. In my previous episode, I really went into the background of the leader of this protest and his many, many, many connections to Russia and his vicious hatred of Ukraine as a country and a culture and a people. Uh, after making that episode, I do feel a little bit bad. I did not also accent the um, economic concerns as much as I could have. I just want to say again that I believe that Russian interference in these things is a matter of driving wedges into cracks, not making those cracks in the first place. There were a lot of Polish truckers whose wallets and therefore livelihoods had been hurt by cheap Ukrainian trucking that was made possible by the lack of these permits that they used to require that they no longer do. So a lot of truckers had their livelihoods hurt, just like a lot of Polish farmers had their livelihood, livelihoods hurt when we talked about that during the various farmer protests. So we do have to keep these in mind that these are still valid concerns, even if it is a Russian toady directing them into negative ways. But anyway, so, so far... Some of the, the problems of this blockade have been lifted. Some of the crossings were opened up again. There are still some that are still blocked, but some were opened up again. Uh, and there was an increase in rail transit. So there was a shift from taking trucks that were blocked, to taking trains that were not, including 
funnily enough, just loading these trucks onto trains so they can cross the border on a train rather than on the road. So ingenuity. Meanwhile, because two people had died, two, two Ukrainian truckers had died within the, the harsh cold conditions of having to live on the side of the road, there was an increased turnout by humanitarian aid groups to make sure that these Ukrainian truckers who were stuck by this blockade did receive food, warmth, etc. The fantastic NGO World Central Kitchen, I think the largest big NGO working in Ukraine and around the, around the world, they're working wherever they're needed, but in Ukraine especially, they've they've they're very much appreciated and they've been bringing aid to these stuck Ukrainian truckers. There has been a larger effort to try to get this blockade lifted. The ambassadors of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia met with the government trying to intervene. Meanwhile, the Hungarian truckers tried to join in to shut down some of the Hungarian border. The, the Slovak truckers have been very off and on with what they were, they've been saying they're going to do. But Poland in general, we, we talked about how this problem would mostly only last until the new government in Poland was sworn in. And that has now happened. The clock ran out on the PIS party, their window to form a right-wing government closed, and the centrist liberal left position, all of them together, have now formed their own government because they were given the time to, including a prime minister, Donald Tusk. Donald Tusk he is the former president of the European Council from 2014 to 2019. He's very much a pro-Europe guy, as you can imagine from that. He is not one to make these big populist statements of we're defying Brussels. He won't do that. So we are likely to see this taper off in the future as the new Polish government finds its it's not going to happen immediately, and I do think that there will have to be something that the truckers are given, maybe some subsidies to cover for the loss of business, who knows. Uh, something will have to be given to them because they get valid concerns in order to, to, to end these protests. But one thing that I saw today outside of this protest issue is that Donald Tusk has really moved in to dismantle a lot of the illiberal foundations that the PS party, the law and justice party has established within Poland and still holds the presidency, by the way, you know, president, prime minister, not the same person, presidency, still a law and justice guy due to Tusk, prime minister, a civic platform pro-European. So with Donald Tusk around, he is trying to dismantle this series of state capture that law and justice had done throughout its tenure. The first thing that's being targeted is the public broadcaster. The public broadcaster in Poland had very much become a mouthpiece of the, the law and justice party, making sure that everyone, if you listened to you know your main TV channels, was receiving the news and the opinions that the ruling party wanted you to hear. This, of course, created a situation that was not very amenable to the growth of the opposition because it had been so captured by the particular message of the ruling party, not just the state as a whole, but specifically the ruling party. So just today, as I'm recording, apparently the heads of the public broadcaster, both the Polish and English language editions, were sacked. The Law and Justice Party uh, forced their way into the building and to try to you know, save what is obviously a very important part of the ruling apparatus. 
And there's some rumblings from some Ukraine commentators because the public broadcaster was also, of course, quite pro-Ukraine as well in most cases. So there was a positive relationship outside of trucker protests. Most of this time of the invasion, this had because of the pro-Ukraine view that they had that led to a lot of positive feelings from Ukrainian and pro-Ukrainian commentators who've worked with them and was concerning of, oh, they're shutting down the media. No, this is something that's very necessary. You cannot allow a single political party to have complete control over the media. That is what happened in Hungary. Like that's the most important thing that happened in Hungary that allowed for the autocratic rule of Viktor Orban was that they bought up all the all the newspapers in the country. They took over most of the TV channels and the opposition media is very small in comparison to what is controlled by the government. And in Hungary, in Poland, these are places where a lot of the media requires government funding in order to stay afloat. Because surprise, surprise, not a lot of money in the media. So the the very partisan leadership of this uh, this media outlet lost their jobs, and the channel was temporarily shut down in the meantime until there is a replacement. Hopefully, this replacement will follow you know European norms and regulations more closely, involving independent media, which what we know of Donald Tusk will likely happen. We'll complain if it doesn't, and it just becomes Donald Tusk TV, DTTV. Sure. But we don't have any reason to complain about that yet. You cannot set up an elaborate system of illiberal, anti-democratic scaffolding while you have power and then shock face when it is dismantled when you no longer have power. This is overall, so far, good for democracy in Poland. So to reiterate, throughout the EU, things are looking better for Ukraine at least as they stand right now. If various populist forces, far-right forces throughout Europe gain the upper hand, and in some of them, such as France, it looks like they could, but that is just speculation at the moment. What we're looking at now, Poland, Hungary, some up, some down there, EU in general, things looking good for Ukraine. The United States, things looking not so good. We need that funding, but preferably without caveats that make it more difficult to get that funding in the future. So this is a bit of a shorter episode because I feel completely awful. Uh, COVID will do that to you. But those are the big news stories of the last few weeks. I would have talked more about Ilya Kiva, but saving that for the episode next month, where we go over a former enemies of the pod. Next week, what we will do is we'll kind of give a year-end wrap-up. Romy and I will talk about how things are going, a spoiler, looking tough, how things will develop within the next year, our reflections on this previous year, what has to be done, what we have to do, what we need to ask other people in other countries to do, and that will be our capstone for 2024. But until then, if you would like to help Ukraine, you can go to our link tree in the description, learn about various charities, sources of information, that sort of thing. If you'd like to help out this podcast, the best thing to do is to tell your friends and family, uh, get more listeners. We always need more people, especially now when the world is starting to look away. We need more people hearing about the news in Ukraine and what's happening, how they can help, etc. 
help us out in the algorithms by liking us, commenting, giving us reviews, and please go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Ukraine without hype in order to help us financially. And also join our Discord where you can contact us directly, ask us questions, give us ideas for what you want to hear about, or just chat. We have some plans for the new year of how to kind of make that a bit more lively. So now I'd like to thank our wonderful patrons. So thank you very much to Deborah Grazer. The voices in my head are from Big Pharma, David Shepard, Giorgio, Vonica Kratskaya, Michael Drucker, Anna Karen Person, Anonymous, Dennis Napalm, Devi, Dimitri Litvin, Etienne, James Burke, Jan, Yanera, Jenny Louise, Kevin Albritton, Marguerite, Michael Wickman, Mike Perone, BLM, Shield Wall, Silas Frank, T. Bart, Vivek, Adam Poppenheimer, Ada McDonald, Alex Grochmull, Anastasia, Barbara, Captain Technical, Chris Bennington, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Emily Pavona, Grace Kraus, Anta Laugh, Jacob Holm, James Wise, Jared Bradley, Jurd, Julia Lindsay, Laura DeLeon, Levy Grove, Ariane, Matt Miller, Musa Kaselko, Anonymous, Noam Hart, Paul Bailey, Randy McNerlin, RDK, Sandra Bongers, Sanjay, Scott Berry, Scott Gengris, Scott Tokayuk, Steve Bien, Stuart Akers, Subtle Knife, Thomas Sobiek, Veronica, Victoria Leontineva, and Wandering Lens. Thank you all very much. You won't make this all possible. So until next week, the last week of the year, Slava Ukraini. <laughs>